This afternoon, we're indeed honored to have with us to celebrate his recent and new book, Bishop Thomas Curry, Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and of the Santa Barbara area. Bishop Curry, a native of Ireland, received his BA in History and Political Philosophy at University College in Dublin. He completed his theological studies at All Hallows College, also in Ireland. And like all good Irishmen, Bishop Curry migrated to the United States where in 1967 he was ordained to the priesthood for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Both a priest and a scholar, he completed his MA in history at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles and his PhD in American history with an emphasis in church and state relations from Claremont Graduate School. Before being assigned to Santa Barbara, Father Curry ministered in various Southern California parishes as well as directed several church programs for clergy we were fortunate when Father Curry was assigned as Auxiliary Bishop of the Santa Barbara area in 1994. In addition to his work in the Archdiocese, Bishop Curry is currently a member of the U.S. Catholic Conference on Communications. His first well-reviewed book, published in 1986, was entitled The First Freedoms, Church and State in America to the Passage of the First Amendment. He's also published in journals such as America, the Journal of Law and Religion, Reviews in American History, and the Ministry of Governance of the Canon Law Society. In 1991, he received the Distinguished Alumnus Award from the Claremont Graduate School. He's just published his new book, which he will discuss with us today and also sign for you after his presentation. It is entitled, Farewell to Christendom, the Future of Church and State in America. It's my great privilege to introduce a man whom I admire as a scholar and a friend, Bishop Thomas Curry. very much, Mary, for such a kind introduction, and thank you very much for being in attendance here. I am honored by your presence. Let me begin with just a little description of how I got here, or at least how, how, what prompted me to write this book which I'm about to discuss with you today. And my journey in that quest began in 19, May 1998 when I was invited to attend a symposium on church-state relations at Loyola law school in Los Angeles. And involved in the symposium was a very distinguished panel headed by um, Justice Scalia, and there was a professor of law from Columbia University, a professor of political science from, uh, from Princeton University, and several other distinguished uh, people there. And my reaction to that symposium was really a confirmation of what I already knew, but this was very tangible evidence of what I knew already, was that the subject of church-state relations is in chaos. It is uh, polarized, divided, politicized, that at that, at that symposium, as at others, I felt that the two sides, and they were called them liberals, conservatives, whatever, they, they simply kept repeating their own positions, they did not really engage each other, and they continued uh, repeating the kind of tired arguments that I've heard a thousand times. And so I decided, I've got to do something about this. Uh, I've got to write something. And I had, as, as Mary said, I had a background in history. I'd studied this, I'd written before on it. Uh, I'd studied with a, a famous professor in, in Claremont named Leonard Levy, who's a nationally known expert on constitutional history. 
uh, had kept in touch with the discipline, reading the journals and reading the cases of the Supreme Court as they came out. Uh, but my life had taken me in all kinds of other directions that, uh, that involved really uh, totally absorbing jobs that didn't allow me for, uh, didn't allow much time for study and especially for writing. But anyway, I decided to try and write on this subject uh, in response to the situation that I think the subject is in. And I decided that I didn't need to embrace one side or the other to try and say, well, this side is correct and the other side is wrong. What I realized I needed to do was try and analyze and reflect on what had brought the discipline of church-state discussion to such to the present impasse that it is in. And what is that present impasse? How bad is it? Let me just illustrate this practically by reading you the announcement of a decision that was handed down in 1989 by the Supreme Court. The decision involved a controversy about two religious displays. One was displaying a crash on the main stairway of the county courthouse in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the other a a display of a menorah right outside the church uh, at, uh, at the same courthouse. Incidentally, the Supreme Court disallowed the crash and allowed the menorah. But the, uh, the, I wanted just to read you the announcement of the case as it comes out in the Supreme Court reports. I'll just read it to you as follows. Justice Blackman announced the judgment of the court and delivered the opinion of the court with respect to parts 3A, 4, and 5, in which Justices Brennan, Marshall, Stevens, and O'Connor joined. And then Justice Blackman also, the opinion with respect to parts one and two, in which Justice Stevens and O'Connor joined. An opinion with respect to part 3B, in which Justice Stevens joined. An opinion with respect to part seven, in which Justice O'Connor joined. An opinion with respect to part six. And Justice O'Connor filed an opinion concurring in part and concurring in the judgment, in part two, of which Brennan and Stevens joined. Justice Brennan filed an opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part, in which Marshalls and Stevens joined. Justice Stevens filed an opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part, in which Brennan and Marshall joined. Justice Kennedy filed an opinion concurring in the judgment in part and dissenting in part, in which Chief Justice Rehnquist, White, and Scalia joined. I'm not making this up. (laughs) So you can imagine trying to sort that out you would have to spend much of your life going through all seven parts, figuring who agreed with this part, who agreed with the other part. And they do reach a decision, but the problem is, and I'm not arguing that the problem are the decisions of the court, because I actually agree with many, very many of the decisions of the court. The problem is that they cannot figure out a reasoning to educate the country to say, this is why we are making our decision. And so it is in, in this chaos. And so my approach is to focus on the assumptions and images underlying the arguments. It's because I argue that the justices and the parties that are associated with them throughout the country, they differ passionately and vehemently, but they're arguing about conclusions when the, really the root of the problem is the assumptions that they're proceeding from that they're not examining at all and oftentimes they share the same erroneous wrong assumptions. And assumptions are very important where we begin from and where we head up.
the Scottish humorist Sidney Smith, uh, walking down the street in Edinburgh, saw two women standing in their doorways, arguing with each other across the street. And he said, they'll never agree, they're arguing from different premises. Now, that's a kind of an <laughs> academic joke. But what, <laughs> what, what is important is, is that it's where we set out from is very important. And the images that we have in our heads, in, in personal relationships, in, uh, in, in church and state and everything else, the assumptions that we begin with and that we, that we carry in our heads are all important and that's what the court is not examining. So I will begin with the most prevalent assumption and image used in the discussion of the First Amendment and church-state relations. Everybody, I think, would say that the First Amendment involves the separation of church and state, right? or some people would say that it creates a wall of separation between church and state. Is that wrong, to say that the First Amendment involves the separation of church and state? My answer to that question is, what does the separation of church and state mean? Can you define it for me? Do you know? What, what do we mean when we say the separation of church and state? We all assume we know what it means, but do we? Could you sit down and write a paragraph explaining and writing a definition of the separation of church and state. Is there a separation between church and state? Obviously, the government cannot come into a church and involve itself in the affairs of the church and say, this is what you have to do. And we are going to come in and we are going to lobby for this policy in the church and for the church to do that. Obviously, they can't do that. We all know that. That's obvious. But remember, the church has always been involved in politics. There's no prohibition against the church being involved in politics. The churches have been involved in politics, in lobbying the government, in trying to influence political policy making forever. In slavery, war, capital punishment, the economy, tax policies, abortion, you name it. Some church is in there involved in politics, lobbying and trying to influence. So how do we say the church and state are separate? You can set up a school to educate children in which you, you thoroughly inculcate your own religion as part of the education and the state will come along and say, yeah, we accept that education as fulfilling public policy. So what do we mean by the separation of church and state? So that my, my difficulty is, is not, I'm, I'm not arguing with the term, I'm just saying, can we define it? And my difficulty is that when we begin to use something that seems to me to be very difficult to define or impossible to define as an analytical tool to, un to, to apply it to a subject, what well, you got difficulties. So that consequently people tend to carry on discussion on the subject on the basis of assumptions that are never examined. Now another fundamental assumption I'll get back to all of these. Another fundamental assumption is that the First Amendment creates religious liberty, right? That it is a guarantee for each one of us to be free in our religion, that the government guarantees that freedom and that the courts implement it and enforce it, right? If so, that was not the original view, and I think that's the way we tend to look at the First Amendment. The original view of those who asked for the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment, was that the government 
instead of being seen as the protector and the guarantor of religious liberty, the government was seen as the chief threat to religious liberty. Therefore, the amendment was enacted to protect people from the government. The amendment was enacted to keep the government out. The, 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 the amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It applies to Congress then, but by way of the 14th Amendment, really the First Amendment applies to all government agencies now. So that, but it says that Congress of the government shall make no law. It's to say you have no jurisdiction, don't get involved in this, don't interfere in it, you have nothing to do with it. Because people did not see, that they originally, they did not see religious freedom or the free exercise of religion as a government right. They saw it as a natural right. And so one, that when they came together to form the federal government, they retained that right and they did not give it to the government. And so they wanted the amendment as a specific warning to say, keep out of this right. Don't touch it. You haven't been given any authority on it. Let me say just a word, which you know about, but just, just to review the formation of the United States government, because it is utterly, well, it is unique. It can't be utterly unique. It's just unique. There's nothing like it really in the world before. Because previous governments had just grew, developed, and they claimed basically all power, and if people wanted to restrict them, they had to fight to gain some rights and to, to limit the government. Like the English monarch said that they'd ruled by divine right. They were representatives of God. They, were, they, were, they, uh, they reported only to God. And the French monarchs were absolute monarchs, Louis XIV saying, I am the state. I am it. So America began with a completely different idea. It began with the idea of a limited government. One with powers, one with specified and limited powers. Uh, so that what was not written down, and was, was not specified in the Constitution, it wasn't given to the government, it was retained to the people and to the states. So, the framers of the Constitution said, at, in Philadelphia, do we need a Bill of Rights? Didn't have much discussion, they said, no, 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 we don't need that. Why? Well, their reasoning was, hey, we're not dealing with those subjects. You don't need a law protecting religion. We're not, we're not giving the government any power over it. You don't need it. So they didn't include a Bill of Rights in the original Constitution. Not that they didn't think these rights were important. They did. But they thought they were retained by the people. But then when it came to ratification, they sent it out to the states. And people in several of the states said, no, no, no. We must have a Bill of Rights. You've got, these, these rights are too important to, uh, to, to be left as kind of a tacit agreement, you must specify, you must specify that this new government has no power over these rights. So do you see what they're saying? Is they're saying, look at, we know, we all, we all agree that the government is given no power over religion, but we want you to write that down explicitly so that there will be no mistake about it, and so the government won't be, that this government won't be threatening the, the free exercise of religion that we have. And there was a big argument about that, and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison were adamantly opposed to a Bill of Rights. They didn't want one, for different reasons. But Alexander Hamilton's argument in the Federalist Papers is famous. And he said, no, no, he said, here, he said, here in strictness, the people surrender nothing, and they retain everything 
and so they have no need for particular reservations or a bill of rights. It's reserved to the people. You don't need it. And he's going on to say, not only do they not need it, he said, this is going to be dangerous if you pass one. Why? Because he said it's absurd. He says, why, for why declare that things shall not be done when there is no power to do it? You don't have any authority to do it in the first place. Why write a law saying you don't have authority to do it? You don't have authority to do it. And he said, and he said it's even dangerous because you start writing these prohibitions and it is evidence that it would furnish a plausible pretense for claiming that power. So people will turn those words around and when you, what, you, what you want to say is that they have, the government has no right. Eventually people will look at those and they'll work it into it that they do have a right. And that's exactly what happened. Because the court now, the Supreme Court, with the, with the encouragement of scholars and commentators, sees itself as the protector of religious liberty, especially for small, uh, insignificant churches. And so, so the court has generally seen as the protector of the natural right to religious liberty. But the amendment doesn't see the government that way at all. The amendment sees religious liberty as something to be protected from the government. That because the Constitution sees the definition of free exercise of religion as something that is reserved to citizens, the court, but now the court defines what religious liberty is and the court controls it. If the court says we are the defender of the natural right of religious liberty, naturally they define it and naturally they enforce it. And that's one of the real problems that instead of the original constitution was looking this way, and now we're looking at it from this way. And, for instance, the court will say about a law, does this law have a primary effect of assisting religion? But that's a religious question. I've been in religion all my life, and it's hard for me to figure out what, what is the best way to have a primary effect of assisting religion. But the justices, they take that power onto themselves, and they say, we know, we know what, 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 whether this will have a primary effect of assisting religion or whether it's not. But what they should be asking, and this is the rule that I'm trying to will stress throughout, is the, 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 the justices should be asking not, is this religious, but they should be asking, is this secular? Because they're confined to what is secular. They are confined to a strictly limited role. And instead of, asking, instead of involving themselves in, in churches and how it's going to affect the church, they should say, is this within the power of the state to enact and to legislate? And if it is, it's constitutional. If it isn't, then it shouldn't be added. So that, that's, my, that's my argument, is that really the focus of the court's argument should be on what is secular. Um, and... I'm going to argue, and I'm, and, and I'm going to say that this is, is a way of approaching the whole question of church and state, is that the way to approach a law and evaluate them in terms of the First Amendment is to ask, will this law involve a government agency in the exercise of authority or jurisdiction in religious matters? Will it, for instance, involve it in deciding questions of belief or doctrine? Will it involve the government in deciding questions of discipline? Will it involve the government in deciding who's a member of a church and who's not a member of a church? Will it involve, it, will it involve a government agency in deciding matters of devotion? That comes in in prayers. 
if you have if you have if you have the government is sponsoring prayer in a public school you cannot have any prayer you want the, the, a person in a public school or a public graduation they can't get up and pray that all Catholics will be converted to the true religion for instance you can't do that but who says you can't do it the government says you can't do it so you're involving the government in a matter of jurisdiction in in, in religious devotion. You're saying, you can say this prayer, but you can't say that prayer. That's what the First Amendment was, was enacted in order to prohibit, to, to keep the government out of deciding that this prayer is acceptable and this prayer is not acceptable. Now, I want to use the experience of the past few months since the terrorist attacks on the country in order to illustrate what I mean. Because in, in contrasting uh, America with the rest of the world, but especially the Muslim world, writers often declare that the Constitution created a secular country, that, we, that all these people there, these are religiously dominated and sometimes fanatical countries, but we, thank God, we live in a secular country. And I just want to read a little quotation from Richard Rodriguez, who is a, a columnist I really like, and I always read his, his stuff, so... But in, in the, I think it was January 6th of this year, he wrote in the LA Times. He says, Not without reason did the founders of America establish a secular society. He's talking about the, the, the world we live in. But is America a secular society? Well, America is a secular society, but it's also a very religious society. America is one of the most religious countries of the industrialized world. So you can't say that America is just a secular country. It's a religious country, too. It's both. And the problem is they're mixing this up because what the Constitution created was not a secular country. The Constitution created a secular government. And there's a big difference because society embraces all of life in the United States. All of life. The United States. The government only embraces a certain limited, a limited spectrum. Of events, and what the gov what we have in this country is we have a secular government. That is a government that is limited to measurable and secular things, not to belief. It's out of belief. It's out of religion. It's out of all these things. It's limited to what's secular, to what can be evaluated, to what can be uh, to to what can be measured. For instance, the definition of treason. Treason used to be imagining the death of the prince. Treason in the old world. But in America, it, America is not that. America is, treason is not a mental crime. Treason is levying war against the United States or giving aid and comfort to its enemies. You can measure all of those things. You can bring them to court and you can prove them. It's not a mental crime. It's an actual measurable crime. In other words, it's a secular thing. So what, what the Constitution created was a secular government, one whose powers are created to, to secular matters. But what happens is... This is very complicated and confused because the two principal parties in the country that are disputing the meaning of church-state relations are both attempting to use the government to change society and the country at large. That one, one is trying to use the government to make society and the American country more religious, and the other is trying to use the government to make society and the country more secular. And they're both wrong. <laughs> so, and so let me say the first group, and 
like they're, they're, I'll begin with the first group, they're often called accommodationists, conservatives, the religious right, whatever. But they would have, and these are all great big uh, conglomerations of people, it's not just one, one party, it's, it's, great, it's great alliances of, of parties, but into one great overall group. But this group would have the government sponsor prayer in schools, Bible reading, they would have the government sponsor religious displays, it would, have, it would promote religious teaching such as the Ten Commandments in order, to for, in order to foster public morality and decorum. And the more radical wing of this group would have the government proclaim America as either a religious country or maybe even a Christian country. And one of the arguments of the, that this group uses is that government always promoted religion and, uh, and they pointed the influence of religion on those who enacted the Constitution and throughout American history. And it's true. The government did always involve itself in religion. I mean, the, 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 the Congress that passed the First Amendment, it provided for chaplains in Congress, chaplains in the army, days of prayer, thanksgiving, fasting. You know, the problem, the thing is that the First Amendment, the Constitution, involved a whole new way of thinking. And it takes a long time to figure out the actual practical consequences of this. And even 200 years later, we're still working it out. It doesn't, the fact that you don't follow your principles doesn't necessarily mean that you deny them. After all, America was founded on the basis that all are equal before the law. But the Constitution didn't make everyone equal before the law. And, and for, for very many, many years, people were not equal before the law. Does that deny? the Declaration of Independence? No, I think there's a certain amount of hypocrisy in all of us, but also there's a certain amount of difficulty figuring out the principle in practice. I belong to a church that says, love your neighbor as yourself. We've been saying that for 2,000 years, we still haven't implemented it, but does that deny the principle? You know, in some ways it does in practice, but in other ways it doesn't, and it's the same with, with the First Amendment. It was very hard after all of those centuries to figure this government has no power in religious matters. You just can't work that in overnight. So, but what I think what, uh, that, uh, that what this group fails, the one who would use the government to make society more religious. What they fail to realize is that the majority of those people who supported the enactment of the First Amendment did so for religious reasons. The majority. They wanted government out of religious matters because they knew that governments had always used religion for their own purposes and had manipulated it and corrupted it. But at the time the First Amendment was passed, Americans by and large believed that religion was absolutely necessary to America. They absolutely believed that and they believed that without a vibrant religion in America, the, Amer the experiment in the American Republic could never survive, could never survive because they believed that for a, for a republic to survive, you needed a virtuous people and you could not have a virtuous people who were not religious. But they believed also that the only way you could create a religious people was by free re religion, by the power of the spirit, by conviction, by conversion, by what was in people's minds and in their hearts. And if they were truly converted, then they would bring that virtue to government, instead of saying the government is going to make them virtuous by promoting religion. That's, what they, that's, that's the mistake that people make, is that the government can make us religious. 
The people who created the First Amendment said, no, the government can't make you religious, only God can make you religious. But if God makes you religious, you will have a vibrant society and you will have a very good government. So that to say that government should not sponsor religion, that's not to be anti-religious. It was, it was at the time the First Amendment was, was enacted, it was those who were, most, who were most deeply religious, the most fervently evangelical people, were for the First Amendment because they saw that it preserved the purity of religion. And they were right. America has continued to be a very religious country when, other, when the rest of the developed world has generally not. Now, the opposing party. The opposing party is usually called separationists, liberals. The ACLU would be very much associated with this. And what I'm contending is that this party would use the power of government to make society, that is our whole country, more secular. Now this group would rightly object to all the government-sponsored practices that I've listed, public primary schools, uh, government-sponsored public displays, etc. However, they would go much farther. They would use the power of government to prohibit the free exercise of religion chosen by individual people if it took place on government property. In other words, they would, for instance, take a, 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 here a, a university meeting room that was used for community purpose, for all, open to all kinds of uses, and they would forbid it to religious use. They would forbid people who voluntarily wanted to use it for religious use. And you see, that doesn't, for, for, for uh, no, the Supreme Court fortunately hasn't allowed that, but that would, uh, people would, would argue for that. And they would argue, for instance, to say that no, young people in high schools, no, they can't discuss religion. If they want to have a club on religion, they can't do it. Uh, if, uh, if, you have, if you have schools that are open for community activities after school, no, no, it can be open for every activity except religious activity. So you see what they are doing is that they are overreached. They are not saying, does this involve government in a religious decision. Well, if you have a room like this, and during the week, a group of people want to get together to discuss religion, the government isn't making them do it. The government has nothing to do with it. It's a, it's a government facility. It's just providing a facility for people to freely exercise what they want, the same as everything else. But people, the people on the other this extreme would say no. Religion must be banned out of any place that the government controls. And this, because this group has the image of the wall of separation in their heads. And so they have the idea of the state is over here and the, and the church is over here and the First Amendment or the government must separate the two out. And so you must separate religion out of all kinds of public spaces. But remember, the First Amendment was not addressed to separating two powers. The First Amendment was addressed to one power, the state. It said, you don't make any decisions or you exercise no jurisdiction in religion. That's it. So if a group of high school kids want to get together to discuss the Bible after school, and everybody else can get to discuss for others, is the government making a decision in religion? I don't think so. You provide a place where people can exercise their religion freely, they can exercise their political speech freely, they can exercise 
uh, playing chess freely, they can exercise everything. The government is making no decision with regard to that. So that the wall of separation, you see, leads people in the wrong direction because it gives them the idea that the government has been given power to separate two things. And they haven't. And this group would also advance the idea that um, they, would they would make judges evaluate laws according to the religious implications of the laws. Whereas, they, I know these are fine distinctions, but the First Amendment says the government is not to enact religious legislation. By religious legislation I'm saying you're not to pay ministers to preach. That's enacting religious legislation. You're not to tell people that they have to go to church on Sunday. That's religious legislation. But what this group would do is they would look at the religious consequences of all legislation. And they would say, they would give the judges the ability to say, now this has a primary purpose, this has a primary impact of aiding religion. Which of course involves judges in making a religious decision and they would say, you can uh, strike down that law. But since every, every law in the country has some impact on religion, every law in the country has an impact on religion, this would give, this would give judges the power to evaluate all laws according to a religious standard. And I think that violates the First Amendment. And so it's important to examine the image of the wall of separation between church and state. Because what's the image? Think of a wall of separation in ordinary things. Some two people have a piece of property they decide to divide it between themselves. They decide on the dividing line and they say, we'll build a wall or a fence. They both agree on it. If they fight about it later, they go to an independent arbiter, the courts, and they have a third party look at it. But that's not the wall of separation of church and state. The wall of separation is none of this, however. According to those who, separate, who, 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 um, who support that image, the wall of separation between church and state was created by the state, the First Amendment, the government. And the government and the courts decide where this symbolic wall is going to go. This court decides it goes here, this court decides it goes here. And if, uh, if the church doesn't like where the wall goes, well, they say, well, come to our courts and we'll give you a hearing. The, the wall of separation leads, leads people to give enormous power in religious matter to, to government. And so it, takes, it, 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 it leads them away completely in the opposite direction than where the, uh, than where the First Amendment said they should be. Let me say just a word about the title, about Christendom. Farewell to Christendom. Christendom is what? Thumbnail sketch. For the first 300 years, Christianity existed. Uh, it had no recognition by the Roman Empire. It was persecuted sporadically and sometimes, a couple of times, was persecuted generally throughout the empire. About 300, the year 300, Constantine became emperor. He embraced Christianity. He wasn't baptized until his deathbed, but he embraced Christianity and he made it legal. The, 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 uh, the relationship between government and, and Christianity, Catholicism actually, continued to increase over the years. And co increasing cooperation and Christianity, Catholicism became the, official, it became the official religion. You had to really be Catholic. And the question then arose was, well, how do we divide the authority? Who has the final say? 
and the church at times, the Pope said, well, if, if the king or the emperor is violating the essential laws of God, he's, he is a menace to society and we have the power to depose him. We have the final say. Obviously, the kings and emperors didn't agree with that. And they, so they came back and said, look at these popes and these bishops, they are all part of the, they're not only ecclesiastical officials, they're civil officials, and we should have the right to appoint them. Same thing is happening right now with the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, but that we have the right to appoint them. Of course, the church didn't like that. And so you get constant battles about where this authority ends and where this authority begins. Where is, where is the, the dividing line between the church and the state? And then we, when we came to the Reformation, that to a certain extent was solved by the fact that the Reformation in the Protestant countries anyway greatly increased the power of princes because the, the Reformation was dependent on civil authority and to a great extent, not, not altogether, but this is a generalization, but to, to a great extent, the, the, the question was settled in favor of the secular power. And for instance, Henry VIII declared himself head of the church and head of the state, solved the problem, kind of. And, uh, but, so, and the French Revolutionary came along, more or less did the same thing. They declared, we're, we're, we're head of both the church and state and we can manipulate the church as we want. But when it came to America, they started in a completely different way. And they said, no, no, we're not going to get into that whole argument about separating the two powers. We're going to focus on what we are and what, our, what the power of the state is. We're going to define the power of the state, and that's it. The church can do what it likes. The only thing you can't do is you cannot put the power of the state behind any of the church's doctrines or practices. You, the church has on its own. It's free, but it's on its own. It has to make its own way. The, this is the limited power of the state. So that the First Amendment is not, that's why I'm saying the First Amendment is an escape from the dilemma of Christendom of separating where, is the, where does the secular authority end and where does the, where does the religious authority begin. It, the America was a scheme from that. It wasn't separating two powers, it was just focusing on one power. And my, my argument is that the, the, uh, the, the discussion of church-state is still carried on in terms of Christendom. That the people who want the government to sponsor religion in schools and to make society more religious and to have the government promote all kinds of religion, they're looking back to Christendom to say, the government, yes, the government always helped this. But you will end up, if the government promotes prayers or promotes religion, you end up with the same problem. Who makes the decision on what prayers? And ultimately, if the government promotes prayers, you have to have an established church because you have to have an official church to say, yes, you can say these prayers. No, you can't say these prayers. That was what happened in Christendom. And then on the other side, the liberal side, if you like, they're doing what the French Revolution did. They're, they're, they're head, at least they're heading in that direction. They're saying, no, the, 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 uh, the First Amendment gives us the authority to build a wall of separation between church and state. We can say the church is here and the state is here. We have the authority to make the final say. But the First Amendment doesn't say that at all. It doesn't talk about separating two powers. It says we are limiting the, the, the authority of one power. We are, we are reining in. We are reining in the, um, the, uh, the power of the state. Running out of time? Okay. So, that what I, can, I want to leave time for questions. So, what I, what I want to say is, 
one of the major, fo a major focus of the book is that I want us to change the, our view. I want us to change the way we look at the law. That we are, we, we do get in the, 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 the image of separating church and state brings us back to Christendom because it brings us back into the, the dilemma that faced Europe, especially for Christendom, for roughly 1,500 years. How do we decide where the church is and how do we decide where the state is? Whereas America simply opted out of that debate and they said, we're not going to talk about separating two powers, we're only going to talk about one power. We're going to talk about the power of the government and the government has these powers and that's it. And it cannot go beyond it. That, so the church can define itself as it likes, state might lend its power to the church, but what the judges need to do is to stop focusing on the church, stop focusing on religion, and to focus on the state. To focus on saying, what power has been given? Is this law secular? So that the essential question to be asked, and some people said, how do you make this practical? How, how, do, you, how do you implement it? Well, any, if any controversy comes up, what I would say is you ask yourself, does this law or will this law involve the government or, a, or an agency of government, a school district, any, any agency like, will it involve an a government agency in making religious decisions? Will it involve it in exercising ju judgments or jurisdiction in religious matters? If it does, the law is unconstitutional. The government has no power to do that. If, it, if it's simply a secular law, if it does not involve, if it does not involve the government in any exercise in jurisdiction, then the government has no has nothing to do with it. it the government, excuse me, the government then can 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 pass it, can enact that law. There is another question that I can deal with later. Sometimes the government can give an exemption from a law. That's the tricky part. But it can give, I believe it can give exemptions. For instance, it's perfectly within the power of government to pass prohibition, to take an historic example. Perfectly within the power of government to say, no one can drink alcoholic liquor, including wine. Okay. If you, that's, that's, that's a secular law. Passed for good reason to, 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 uh, to protect families, to protect children, you know, to protect the public, to protect people's health. You can pass that law. It's not a wise law to pass, we realize, but you, you, can, you can pass that law. Now, if you enact that law, you're going to have a major impact on religion. Does that mean that so it violates the First Amendment? No, it doesn't, I'm afraid. Government has perfect right to say that. And you say, hey, but this violates my religion. But the government says, oh, we're not talking about your religion, we're talking about the health of society. Sorry. They could say that, sorry. I mean, I could go to the government and say, my religion demands that I preach at, at the intersection of uh, State and La Combra this afternoon uh, in the middle of the street in rush hour. And the government says, that's fine, you're perfectly entitled to the free exercise of your religion, but if you try to exercise it, we'll put you in jail. That, that, this, there's no problem because that's, that's, that's a secular matter, it's controlling traffic. It's not, it's not addressing my religion. But now to come back to, just to come back to the whole issue of prohibition. If you've had prohibition, obviously you're going to have a major impact on Catholics and Jews. So should the government give an, give an exemption from there? 
yeah, I think it would. It, it's, it's a good government, it's a good model of government to give an exemption in those cases. There's plenty of reasons. Uh, the law is very complicated on this again too, but there's plenty of reasons to give it. Uh, but it's, it's, I don't think it's compelled by the First Amendment to give it, but it's good, it's, it's, it is wise. Uh, and, uh, but those are exemptions. The issue is in judging a law, when people say, oh, this, this is a violation of the separation of church and state. What, what I would like us to do is to translate that into our own question, to say, when you say this is a violation of separation of church and state, does that mean that this involves a government agency in making religious decisions or in exercising a, ju a jurisdiction in a religious, not a secular matter? And if it does, then it's unconstitutional. But if it doesn't, it's constitutional. That would be the practical result that I would, uh, would leave you with and hope that's helpful and I would be happy to answer questions uh, having gone on over time, I think. I have a microphone because we're taping this, so if you have a question, please raise your hand and I'll get the microphone to you for your question for Bishop Curry. Oh, you want to do it? I want to thank you for a really stimulating talk. I have a kind of clumsy question, if you'll bear with me. Um, I think it has two parts, in the, but the ultimate question is, is a question of what difference does it make, because I think at the end, come down to the same thing. But if I had had to define separation of church and state before your talk, I would have said, as a historian looking at some of the things you touched on, that it simply means there's going to be no official state-sponsored religion because that's what the framers of the Constitution experience was and that's what they were concerned with. Whether it was a state-sponsored religion says, this is the religion of this state, it's the only one you can practice. So that's the way I would have defined it. It seems f following from that, that, um, <clears throat> if you'll forgive me, the, the phrase, the devil is in the details, when it actually comes to enforcing that, um, for instance, we could say this is a public group. Any public group has access to it. If you want to give a religious talk or have a Bible meeting in this room, that's fine. But it's very, very hard when, you're, when you have that authority to extend it to things you don't agree with. I mean, even simply in my classroom, students come in and say, may I give a, a pitch for this thing? And it's, it's very easy to think, well, I agree with it, okay, I don't agree with it, therefore you can't. So, uh, yes, you can do this in this room, your Bible study, but no, you can't have a gay and lesbian group in this room, or no, you can't have a devil worship group in this room. And when you have that kind of problem, if we don't let the courts adjudicate it, who is going to adjudicate it? That's, that's I mean... I'm not sure yeah. what the question is I'm asking. What a, practically it's, is it's, the difference? It's a two-part question. The, the, the devil is in the details because actually at the time the First Amendment was passed, there was no situation as you describe it. There was no colony. There was no state that said, this is the official religion you have to, you have to practice it. That actually for a hundred years before the, the Constitution was passed, that was not the case. Uh, so, so there was no exclusive tyrannical establishment of religion at the time the First Amendment was passed, their experience was quite different. So we'd have to, we'd have to go back and examine the history there, and I, my book does, by the way. But the second is that actually 
what the, what the court says, and I agree with this, that if you have a public forum, all, all commerce, I mean in terms of ideas, and you can't have a public forum where you abuse children or, you know, you, you perform actions that are, are illegal, but in terms of the exchange of opinions, ideas, the, the court says if you have a public forum, all commerce basically are entitled to come. The problem was that in, in, in Ohio, they had a public forum where they had, where they had displays and the Ku Klux Klan came along and had a, had a display. And the, the, the uh, local authority said, no, no, not the Ku Klux Klan, you can't do that. The court said, sorry, if you have a public forum, a public forum is a public forum. You may despise, you may hate their ideas, but that's the way it is. And I would say that's the way it is in, uh, in uh, public forums. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I have the impression that Catholics don't really hold to the view of biblical literalism in the sense that Christian fundamentalists might. But it seems to me we've had an exercise in literalism this afternoon over the word separation. Just because the word doesn't appear in the First Amendment doesn't mean that that was not what was intended. And on that point, we have the word of the people who wrote that and who argued about it, who discussed it for years, year in and year out, and their correspondence and so on. You know I'm referring to Jefferson, Madison, and others. The, uh, of course, Madison, uh, the, 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 um, the, my problem with separation, I'm not talking about, I, I would, yes, we were not biblical literalists. Uh, but my question is, when we talk about the separation of church and state, it's fine. Just would someone define it? They, people can't define it. It's, it's, it's uh, and especially the wall of separation, when we translate the question of jurisdiction into a metaphor, then we have a problem. And that is one of the problems that is, uh, that is underlying the present chaos in church-state relations. Mad the, the wall of separation comes, of course, from a letter from Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists which came as part of a, of, a, of a letter that I would say was a throwaway, uh, it was a throwaway uh, metaphor. It's become enshrined in the, in the discussion of church and state and I think has misled the whole, uh, the whole, the whole question. The term separation occurred in 1860 in a court decision without any reference to walls. The wall is a metaphor, but yes. separation is the principle. Yes. And I, what I'm holding is that the First Amendment was not passed to separate two powers. It was passed in order to define the power of the state or to limit the power of the state. Not to, not to say that this is the... This is the uh, when we use the, the term separation of church and state, we, we immediately, the image leads us to the idea of separating two powers and that the government is designing this is the role of the church and this is the role of the state. I think that's what, that's what I'm holding that the image leads us to. But that was not the original intent of the First Amendment. That's what I'm holding. I'd like to fall back on a little history and in regard to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It seems to me that when the Constitution was written, it was written by the Federalists. The Federalists were really opposed by the Anti-Federalists. So the Federalists never contained anything to religion in the Constitution, as you mentioned. But they gave in 
to the anti-federalists who did want something in regard to religion put into the Constitution. So in 1791, they added a Bill of Rights that included the First Amendment, uh, the Establishment and the Free Exercise Clause. But nevertheless, the states were writing their constitutions, and they had declarations of rights in their private, their own constitutions, which had uh, freedom of religion written within the state constitution. So we're talking about prohibitions written against the national government in the Bill of Rights. And those Bill of Rights did not really swing against the states until, as you mentioned, the 14th Amendment. So I, I you know, I, I follow your whole argument, but I see it right. really as against the central government and not dealing with religion in the states. Right. And there was an awful lot of religious discrimination. And I know in Massachusetts, for example, right. against Jews. And so the states were having their own good time. Right. This is discussed in the book, uh, but I would just briefly say, first of all, Massachusetts did not propose an amendment, didn't ratify the one that was proposed. But Massachusetts didn't ratify the First Amendment until 1939. Uh, they ratified it symbolically then. Massachusetts was not one of the ratifying states. So uh, that doesn't, but, uh, but yes, you're right, that, the, that, the, that of course the, the, the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states until the 14th Amendment, until, until uh, 1940. However, there is an argument that the First Amendment was enacted in order to protect some of the establishments within the states. The problem with that argument is that there were no establishments within the states. The historians have invented them. Because we have invented an idea that there were establishments and projected them into the past. No state proclaimed an establishment of religion then. But, uh, but it, the, the reason why the states wanted the First Amendment was, and it came from the people who were, who, who were the backers of religious liberty in the states, they were afraid that the, this new government would impinge upon the liberty that they had uh, already achieved in their own states. So granted, uh, granted that it didn't apply to the states then, but it is perfectly compatible with the original idea that it should apply to the states now because they wanted that liberty, they had it in the states, they wanted to make sure the federal government would not, would not interfere with that liberty, so they took away the, the, uh, they took away the part from the federal government. Uh, you referred uh, early in your talk to the right of governments uh, to intervene in activity if they have a secular reason for doing so. As you know, <clears throat> that has become the phrase compelling interest right. as a justification for curtailing religious practices in some fashion. But as you also no doubt know, in the Smith decision in 1990, uh, Justice Scalia said that there was no need to identify a compelling uh, interest that Oregon had in right. you know, so on. What's your thought on that? That, that, that Justice Scalia messed up the, the rights and liberties of the people of the United States, but apart from that, what, what I would make, let's, what, 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 we need, what I think the court needs to do, which it doesn't do clearly enough, is make a distinction. There is a distinction between laws that are constitutional or unconstitutional, and that apply to everybody, 
So if the court says this law violates the First Amendment, it violates it for everybody. If it's constitutional, it's constitutional for everybody. But having said that, then as in the case of prohibition, as in the case of, of, of using peyote for, for Native Americans, people will come and say, well, this law, yeah, this is what it's passed for, but it's having an enormous impact on us. It was passed in order to, a law was passed in order to prohibit the use of, uh, of drugs, but it's wiping out our religion. So can we have an exception? And until that time, the court said, yeah, yeah, if, there's a, if it's reasonable, and if there is no compelling reason why the government shouldn't implement this, I mean, if it's not going to have a major impact on, on the whole country, if it's not going to, if it's not going to cause chaos in, in enforcing, say, the, uh, the drug laws, then you can give people, because of the importance of religious liberty, you can give people an exemption. And I think that's right. Now, it's not saying that the, that the law against drugs is unconstitutional, because it is constitutional. It's just saying, we're for this reason, because of historic reasons of why the country said it, 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 people's religious liberty is very important, we are not going to enforce the law against these people for this reason, because we have no reason to believe that they're fraudulent, and it's not going to cause, it's no skin off anybody's teeth, if you want to say it that way. <laughs> but Justice Scalia came along and said, basically, mm -mm. If, if it's a valid law, no exceptions, except for extraordinarily difficult reasons that are in there. So, and, and most people would agree that was a bad decision, that it will be overturned eventually, and it should be overturned. So that's where I would come from.